Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that the Bible is you speaking. Thank you that the Bible is totally trustworthy. Thank you, Lord, that in the scriptures you are able to be understood. You are clear. Thank you for the necessity of the scriptures, Lord. Air is not more necessary for our lungs than the word of God is for our lives. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We need this book. And ultimately, Father, this book is is enough. It's enough for all of life and godliness. And that's why we gather around it at the head of this week as a, a week is stretched out in front of us, a week of mission to, to be and make disciples, to be the church in this community, um, to see Jesus made much of. And so we, we want to feast. We've come hungry. And Lord, truth be told, we come, we come broken and we come in, in great need of your healing and your help and your forgiveness. So would you come? now and manifest the presence of Jesus through the preaching of your word. Thank you that you are, you have promised to do such through the scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for the power of the gospel. Lord, use this message, use the messenger, weak, weak as I am, and, and, and pick up these words. It is, it is what you do with the words between my lips and, and the, the ears of my family here that matters the most. So Holy Spirit, press these words home in a powerful way. May we walk away changed. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. One week ago, Jesus asked us a question in Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 20, that he began to answer. And his answer, in some sense, serves as an hors d'oeuvre for the banquet table that he's going to spread in front of us this morning. Jesus' question, Luke 13, 18 and 20, is this. What is the kingdom of God like? Open question. What, what is, what do you suppose the kingdom of God is like? And the big idea last week was that every Christian agrees that Jesus is king, but where he'd like to see far greater agreement on is the nature of his kingdom. And the measure of Jesus' interest in this topic is directly proportionate to the amount of ink that the Holy Spirit allows to be spilled on this topic. Jesus is relentlessly taking up the topic of the kingdom. It's one of his favorite subjects. It matters a lot to Jesus. It ought to matter a lot to us. So last week we discovered three truths about the nature of the kingdom that were drawn from Luke chapter 13 that Jesus both demonstrates and communicates that carefully considered begin to help us to build a theology, a biblical and practical theology of what the kingdom is. So Jesus teaches us that when the kingdom of God is at hand, it's, it's three things. It's, it's undeniably powerful, it's fiercely protective, and it's completely pervasive. Those were the three points from last week. The kingdom is undeniably powerful in the sense that when Jesus begins to reign on David's throne, signs and wonders and miraculous healing culminating in the resurrection of the body will be experienced by citizens of this kingdom throughout the world. And it's fiercely protective in the sense that when Jesus begins to reign on David's throne, an era of justice and peace and conditions of safety and security and prosperity that this earth has not known since the days of the Garden of Eden will prevail across the planet. 
And then finally, the kingdom is completely pervasive in the sense that when Jesus begins to reign on David's throne, there is not one corner of this planet that will not encounter and have full access to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and treasure. He'll be the ruler of the kings of the earth in that day. Which is to say, in other words, the kingdom of God, as we defined last week, as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, the kingdom of God has not arrived yet. At least not in all of its fullness in the way that it will one day. As we look about this world, as we said last week, that shouldn't surprise us. In fact, if anything, it ought to comfort us deeply. This is not the final stop. If you know Jesus, the best is genuinely to come. The King is coming. We have a lot to look forward to. Which brings us to our text today. We've already had it read for us, and so all that remains is just to walk back through what we've heard. We'll draw out a handful of truths and seek to apply them to our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit as we pursue our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus together. So here's the big idea in view of all that we've been learning last week and into this week. As future citizens of Christ's kingdom, we have been given much. And to whom much has been given, much will be demanded. As future citizens of Christ's kingdom, we have been given much. And to whom much is given, much will be demanded. So here's the first of two points today which attempt to explain why that's, that's true. Point number one. It's not enough to seek the kingdom. You must strive to enter it. According to Jesus, it is not enough to seek the kingdom. You must strive to enter it. So look with me at Luke chapter 13, verse 22. In Luke 13, 22, we read, He, that's Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Now, it's been about five months since we've heard Luke make a travel note like this, but we ought to make something of it. Uh, Because back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read that when the days grew near for him to be taken up, he set his face toward where? Jerusalem. In Luke 9.53, we learn that his face was set toward Jerusalem two times there in two verses. And here in verse 22, it's the third time we encounter this travel note. And by the time that we actually arrive in Jerusalem, which I think if I'm doing the math right, will be it's spring of 2019. When that happens, we will have seen this author mark Jesus' path toward this city another half dozen times. Okay, why? What? Why does this garner so much of Luke's attention? Why this laser-like focus on one city throughout the entire back half of the Gospel of Luke? The answer to that question is bound up with something that J.I. Packer once said, and as soon as I read this, uh, this has just stayed with me. Packer says, The traveler through the Bible landscape misses his way as soon as he loses sight of the hill called Calvary. Isn't that good? The traveler through the Bible landscape, wherever you are, misses his way as soon as he loses sight of the hill called Calvary. Jerusalem matters because Calvary matters. Calvary matters because the cross matters. The cross matters because the gospel matters. And if we wanted to be fully biblical, we would say that the gospel doesn't just matter. The gospel is, in fact, the matter of first importance. 
So the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5, Now I would remind you, brothers, after a whole book of telling them about the gospel, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you believed, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For what I delivered to you, as of first importance, I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared first to Cephas and then to the Twelve. The traveler through the Bible landscape misses his way as soon as he loses sight of a hill called Calvary. Luke knows this. That's why Luke is so vigilant to mark Jesus' pathway toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem is true north throughout the Gospel of Luke because the Gospel is true north throughout the Bible and throughout the Christian life. Now, in the midst of his traveling and teaching, a particular individual in this text, only identified as someone, that's all it says, someone asked Jesus a very pointed question. So let's look at it. Verse 23, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? That's an interesting question. I wonder if it's one that you've asked before. I have. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, perhaps this individual has been following Jesus and listening to his preaching over the course of chapters 12 and 13, preaching that deals with, let me think about the themes of the past couple of months, the final judgment, signs of the time, priority of repentance, the nature of the coming kingdom. He'd been listening to Jesus And the thought began to occur to him, I wonder if not everyone is going to get saved. So he asked him straight up, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, Jesus' answer on one level is absolutely fascinating. It's fascinating because if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we know what Jesus thought to the answer of this question. In Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are how many? Many. Many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Luke 13, 23, this person has asked him a yes or no question. And if we used Matthew 17, 14 to answer Luke 13, 23, the answer is yes. Those who are saved will be few. Nevertheless, in context, that is not how Jesus chooses to answer this question. This is what I find fascinating. Let's look at this again, starting at verse 23. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. Tasting the flavor of this, church father Cyril of Alexandria captures the heart of this exchange when he offers this observation. He says, this reply of our Lord may seem perhaps to wander from the scope of the question. This man wanted to learn whether they would be few who are saved, but he explained to him the way whereby he may be saved himself. That's the accent here in Jesus' answer. That's exactly right. That's precisely what Jesus is doing. This man is concerned with all sorts of other folks, evidently, and their salvation and how many of them will see the kingdom. 
He's concerned about other folks. And so Jesus says to him, in effect, uh, you know, not, not for nothing, but you ought to be able to focus a little closer to home. The primary question is not, will few be saved? The primary question is, will you be saved? And that brings us to Jesus' full answer in verses 24 to 28. So let's take that all together now. Luke 13, starting in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we'll hold up the reading right there for the sake of this first point. Now, the context here is more than clear, isn't it? Jesus is addressing Jewish people. Jesus is the master of the house. He's the Messiah. The narrow door is the entryway into the great wedding feast that we know in context is the kingdom of God when it comes. And his listeners in their unbelief are coming precariously close to the point of no return with the feast door slammed in their faces. And their Achilles heel here, interestingly, is not their unfamiliarity with Jesus. It's the exact reverse. It's rather their closeness with him. Their acquaintance with him, their familiarity with him is their liability. Not an asset here. These folks know Jesus. At least they think they do. And so listen to them, starting in verse 25. Lord, open to us. We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. You hear it? Now, without a doubt, the, the immediate application is for these first century Jews. They were bordering on presumption on pretension. In Yiddish, it's called chutzpah, right? This is audacity. They think that they have a claim on Jesus simply because they've been in proximity to him and his followers. They've even eaten with him. They've heard his teaching. But one thing is abundantly obvious here in this passage. Jesus makes no claim on them. He says to them twice, once in verse 25, once again in verse 27, I do not know where you come from. You imagine hearing those words from him? I do not know where you come from. Now clearly Jesus doesn't literally mean he doesn't know where they live. Of course he knows where they come from in that sense. Now this, this double condemnation of these people is not geographic so much as it is relational. Jesus in effect is telling them, yes, we share an ethnic heritage. Yes, we share a common worldview. Yes, we've eaten together. Yes, you've heard me teach. And no, none of that serves to offset your unbelief in me. To which they might respond in verse 24, but we're seeking to enter the kingdom. And Jesus replies to them and to every single one of us here today, it is not enough to seek to enter the kingdom. You must strive to enter it. You say, what's the difference? Potato, potato, right? No. The difference is massive. Um, the word that Luke uses here for strive in verse 24 is the Greek word agonizomai. Do you hear an English word in there? Agonize. 
agonize. When Jesus commands his listeners to strive to enter through the narrow door, he's clarifying for them just how intense this path of genuine discipleship is for one of Jesus' followers. The word strive is variously translated throughout the New Testament as sometimes it's exercising, sometimes it's struggling. On occasions, this word is translated fighting. In all of these occurrences, the focus is personal holiness. Progressive sanctification, the incremental degree-by-degree process in this life of becoming just like Jesus. Agonizomai means the killing of our sin through the experience of suffering empowered by the Holy Spirit. It makes a difference when you know what this word can do, doesn't it? It's a game changer as it relates to the temper and tone of the pursuit of the kingdom throughout our Christian lives as we look for the return of the king. Don't seek to enter the kingdom. You'll never make it that way. Strive, struggle, agonize toward the kingdom. You say that all sounds rather melodramatic. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. The, the passage in the Gospel of Matthew that comes to mind is chapter 11, verse 12, where Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Isn't that wonderful? Hmm. When Jesus says in Matthew eleven twelve that the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force, the idea is, in the words of one author, the kingdom presses ahead relentlessly and only the relentless press their way into it. Nobody coasts into the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not enough to seek the kingdom. You must strive to enter into it. Now, this, this sort of truth, on the face of it, tends to do the work of afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted, doesn't it? I'll readily admit it. On the one hand, there are undoubtedly those of us here this morning who, like the first century Jews of old, whose, whose pursuit of the kingdom of God is so bland, so moderate, so mild as to not come anywhere close to the idea of striving after it. And if this is you, it ought to deeply concern you. My, my hope is that Jesus' words in verses 27 and 28 register with you down deep as they are designed to when he says, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In this place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So please don't minimize what the Savior is saying here to religious people in context. You can be sincerely certain that you're going to enter the kingdom and be sincerely wrong. These folks evidently were wrong. 19th century preacher Alexander McLaren put it this way, A man may be a most respectable and respected church member and have listened to Christian teaching all his days and have in life, a vague wish to be saved and yet be hopelessly unfit to enter the kingdom and therefore irremediably shut out. Let us learn that while faith is the door, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And there at the end, he's just quoting Hebrews twelve fourteen. Without holiness, apart from holiness, no one will see the Lord. So how hard do you pursue holiness? What kind of a week has it been for you? How dramatic is your spirit-empowered effort to put your sin 
to death. How serious are you about striving after the kingdom of God? At the same time, not only do the Savior's words afflict the comfortable, at the same time, it's also the case here this morning that they designed to comfort the afflicted. I know that many of you are in a season of your lives where you're not strolling through the Christian life. You are struggling. You're walking with the Lord. You're, you're crawling with the Lord, but you made it to worship today. You're walking with Jesus. You're fighting the good fight of faith. You're routinely in the Word. You're trusting God's promises, and the wind by God's design is just in your face, and that's the way it's been for the last season or so. And you're thinking right now, you know, this is just hard. This is painful. I'm bearing up under suffering. I'm turning away from sin. I'm striving to enter through the narrow door. I'm not sure how much more of this I can take, frankly. And if you're thinking that way this morning, then I have a question for you. Can you strive to enter through the narrow door one more day? I'm not talking about the rest of your life or the rest of this year or this month or even this week. I'm just talking today. Sunday, May 20th, 2018. We're never going to see this day again. Can you strive to enter through the narrow door today until your head hits the pillow tonight? And my guess is that no matter what you're up against, your answer is a yes. By God's grace, with the Spirit's help, I can do that today. I can strive to enter through the narrow door today. Okay. Did you know that is all he asks of you? Today. You say, you got a text for that? Yeah, I do. Matthew 6.34. Jesus says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And when Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow door, he means today. Today, right now. You say, what about tomorrow? Jesus says, eh, we don't talk that way. No. This is a one-day renewable lease. And you can sign it again tomorrow morning. Do you know you can get through entire years, decades, you can get through a whole lifetime that way on that one-day renewable lease with Jesus. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force today, not tomorrow. Don't you worry about tomorrow. Till your head hits the pillow tonight, that's the deal. And then you wake up in the morning and you sign on once again. As future citizens of the kingdom of Christ, we have been given much and to much has been given, much will be demanded. It's not enough to seek to enter Christ's kingdom. You must strive to enter it. Okay, second point today. If you're a kingdom-bound Gentile, never forget your unspeakably privileged position. If you are a kingdom-bound Gentile, never forget your unspeakably privileged position. For this point, let's just head right back into the thick of verse 28 and we'll follow it into verse 30, which is the, the end of our text. Remember that in verse 28, Jesus is warning those who are merely seeking, not striving to enter the kingdom. Such people will one day find themselves on the outside of the kingdom, right? That's clear. When he says in verse 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. 
Now, it's entirely possible we could have gathered verses 28 to 30 underneath point one and just finished off early this morning. My wife might have been appreciative of that. She's in the nursery. If I had done that, we would have missed a beautiful opportunity to bear witness to something that I think we all too often take for granted, something that as followers of Christ in the context of the global church, we all too frequently just assume. And I tell you, this is something that Jesus and his original listeners didn't assume and that the New Testament, quite frankly, tends to make a pretty big deal of. And that would be our place at the table to begin with. We touched on it a bit last week, and we'll hammer it home next week, but since it's right here in our passage today, let's just linger a moment and enjoy these verses. As you read and ponder verses 28 to 30, you'll notice that Jesus is not simply content to warn his Jewish leaders or listeners about the judgment ahead if they don't repent. Jesus does more. He labors to paint a portrait of the blessing, the sheer blessing they stand to miss out on if they don't repent. So once again, verses 28 to 29, Jesus says, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets, you're not going to want to miss this, guys, But at, at the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out and people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Okay, what's he doing here? It's like we said last week, he is reminding them of the massive incongruity involved in the fact that one day a Jew don't miss this, a Jew is going to rule the world and the Jews themselves are careening dangerously close to not being a part of it. When Christ returns to this earth, though, citizens will literally flood this kingdom. Verse 29 is a picture of the global church, if there ever was one, and her entry into the banquet hall. He says in verse 29, and people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. They will come. They will come from Afghanistan and Angola, from Belize and Bosnia, from Kenya and from North Korea, from Mexico and Myanmar, from Poland and Portugal, from Russia and Rwanda, from Samoa to Saudi Arabia, from Thailand to Turkey, from Uzbekistan to the United States of America and on and on. So much so that we begin to see why Jesus referred, refused to answer the question up in verse 23 with a simple yes. This man was wondering if there would be few who entered the kingdom. That's not the picture here in verse 29. People from every direction are going to inhabit the kingdom. And you say, exactly. Nothing could be more natural. Christ is highlighting the faith of the nations that comprise his church, the world over. And that's true. And yet the New Testament's answer to that way of thinking is, is, is hold on now. We're, we're forgetting ourselves. This is not natural. This is the reverse of natural. This is supernatural. If you are not an ethnic Jew and you are currently enjoying the spoils of the salvation of the Jewish Messiah, and furthermore, you are anticipating his return to rule and reign over this earth through his kingdom, please don't forget, it hasn't always been that way. This is where we need to take the long view, because you may have grown up in a Christian home, and your parents may have grown up in a Christian home, and your parents' parents may have grown up in a Christian home, but you know what? That lineage hits a wall at some point. 
the further back we go. That spiritual lineage only goes back so far. If you trace the origins of Gentile faith back to the pages of the New Testament and you, you plow up what's underneath, you don't see generations of belief as some of us have enjoyed in our families. You see descriptions of folks like us with phrases like this, wild olive shoot. That's Paul in Romans eleven seventeen, Or dogs. That's Jesus' word for us in, in Matthew fifteen twenty six. That's nice. Or separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was your resume before you met Jesus. It was mine too. I hope you feel some of this because when it begins to dawn on you, it's a little bit like a second conversion. If you're a kingdom-bound Gentile, never forget your unspeakably privileged position. And this is what gives us context for what Jesus says in verse 30. Famous words, but I wonder if you've thought about them in this context. Verse 30, Behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. You see what he's saying? Gentiles at one time were last. They were dead last in darkness after generation after generation after generation. Now in this age, they are first. They get right to the front of the line in the church, to the front of the line of salvation in the people of God. Jews at one time, read the first five-sixths of your Bible, were first. Now in this age, by and large, they are last. They're in the back of the line as it relates to the salvation in the people of God. Now let's be clear, when Jesus says last, he does not say lost. We need to watch our vowels here. Jesus' hope for the conversion of his people at the end of the age knows no limit. The Hebrew people will come to their Messiah. They'll come last, but they will come. So what does this mean for you and me? And I'm praying this lands on you. If you're a believer in Jesus, and not just a believer in Jesus, but a Gentile believer in Jesus, you have received what the Bible describes in John 1.16 as grace upon grace. You and I were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And as we read the promises in the Old Testament, the only claim we have and the only claim we need is Jesus. Hmm. It doesn't get more destitute than that on the one hand. And yet as Gentile Christians, we, we don't have anything to stand on except for grace. Now as it turns out, Jewish believers in Jesus don't have anything to stand on either apart from grace. So first sense your privilege and then uh, lastly, I would just say, can I can I urge you to, to do something with your advantage this week? Redeem this opportunity. Don't gloat. Go into the world and make disciples. This is our time. Don't just get the gospel right. Get the gospel out from the nations to the nations. Let's be on mission this week with our lists of five. It's a beautiful time of year. This is the opportunity for evangelism. We have three months to do this. And then everyone goes back in and starts hibernating after Labor Day. So think through. Get a game plan for this summer. 
We're going to get a little B12 shot in regard to evangelism at the end of the summer when Brian Stout and his family come to join us again. We look forward to that. He's going to get us through the lean winter months. But make the most of this summer, please. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for everyone who believes and for who? For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Thank God. If you're a kingdom-bound Gentile, never forget your unspeakably privileged position. Well, let's review. As future citizens of Christ's kingdom, we have been given much. And to whom much has been given, much will be demanded. It's not enough. First, it's not enough to seek Christ's kingdom. You must strive to enter it. How are you doing on that? If you're a kingdom-bound Gentile, never forget your unspeakably privileged position. We're doing better than we deserve. This week's passage highlights God's heart for the nations, doesn't it? We're going to see that in just a moment as we pray for Grace and for Monica as they head to Uganda tomorrow. Verse 29 is anything but unclear. People will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. I mean, one day the book of Revelation speaks of a great multitude that no one can number from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb because God so loved the world. At the same time, especially in view of our privileged position as believers from the nations sent out to the nations, there's one nation in particular that we ought not to overlook. One nation unlike any other, a nation unique with peculiar and special promises from God himself, and I'm speaking, of course, of the nation of of Israel. And next week, it'll be our joy to peer into the pages of Holy Scripture, really just the next passage of Holy Scripture, and get a glimpse of God's heart for this unique people. Next Sunday, we'll consider both the staggering blindness and the hard-heartedness of the Jewish people on the one hand, alongside Christ's stunning regard for and love to them on the other, and what it all means for you and me today on the practical planes of reality. That's next week. Right now, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life, Lord Jesus. And we love, Lord, how the scriptures set the the parameter for what we want to do. We want the, the content and intent of your book to be the content and intent of the preaching in this church. And I pray that you'd continue to build this fellowship upon the rock of your word. Lord, use this message. Give it an extra lifespan through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we gather in our community groups to work these study questions and as we ponder what these things look like filtered down into the daily particulars of our lives. Help us to keep in step with your Spirit, never, never dodging tough texts, but, but taking them on, enjoying them, learning the full counsel of God, growing, and as we said, not just getting the gospel right, but getting the gospel out. Lord, you've brought health into this church, but that health is for the purposes of growth. You've brought depth into this church, but the depth is for the purposes of breadth. Lord, Christianity is for sharing. So help us to spread the good news of our King this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.